Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and this podcast series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose work, life, and experience shed light on what is taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. Gone are the days of just horizontal outlet expansion where you just open up new outlets um, and new relationships with customers and you grow your business horizontally. Um, those days are, are gone. Now it's around how you really drive vertical growth in the outlet. Those are the words of Miles Wilson, a senior executive with Coca-Cola. I first met Miles in Shanghai when he was at the helm of supply chain activities for Coca-Cola for the entire Asia-Pacific region. He was the man to know if you're curious about what happens behind the scenes to, so that you can pick up a can of Coke from virtually any supermarket, convenience store, or vending machine in the Asia-Pacific. He began in Sydney, Australia, and then Hong Kong, then Shanghai, and now Singapore, where Miles, uh, who has been with Coca-Cola for over a decade, now heads the Global Commercial Leadership program for Coca-Cola. That means he determines commercial strategy for Coca-Cola globally. Miles is an Australian, and he was in Dubai when we had this conversation. I was in New York. I think you'll find Miles has a lot to say that you'll find significant. For example, he talks of how different China is now from his first years there. When I first started this eight years ago, um, and I was traveling up into Asia a little bit before then, so let's just call it 10 years ago. I mean, there was, China was very, um, China was almost not left to their own devices, but, but China was, it was rapidly growing. No one really understood it. Um, you know, everyone sort of was starting to realize that it was, it was materially important either to their business or to their country. Um, and, uh, you know, the numbers kept rolling in and no one really was too concerned about how it got there. Now, um, obviously, there's a lot of realization coming out about food safety, around pollution, um, around um, uh, rights for, for people and families. Um, and, uh, you know, people are really starting to stand up and pay attention to this. And I think now China's not getting away with what they used to get away with. And Miles says that the slowdown in the Chinese economy has had major impact on the new middle class. You know, I mean, this, this, this Chinese stock exchange or the Shanghai, Shanghai index had been growing for, for 10 plus years. And if you're 28 years old, it's all you know. So you assume this is going to continue to grow. So you go and borrow significant amounts of money relative to your own personal wealth and you invest it. And then, of course, the crash happens. And so you've got three or four hundred million middle class consumers out there. Not all of them are affected by this, but a lot of them are who now have debts that are unsustainable. Miles has a lot to say about Chinese who are coming to the West in Australia and not returning to China. And he also has comments for expats like himself. Expats, um, we're a dying breed. We are definitely a dying breed in China. You'll hear Miles comment on this and a whole lot more. So let's get started. Welcome to Conversation 360 podcast, Miles, and to this Asia and the West series. So... First question is, when we talk about the conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what comes to mind for you, Miles? What does that mean? Yeah, look, I mean, honestly, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, is the political discussion right now. Um, you know, I think there's an increasing tensions going on um, around the, uh, the islands in the South China Sea. Um, and I think increasingly the West is starting to get involved 
Um, China's been very, very forward in stating their position. Um, and I think as recently as last week, um, it got uh, legally certified that the islands didn't belong to China and China have not ratified that decision. And so they're either going to double down on their decision or they're going to continue doing what they're doing or they're going to scale it back. And, and I don't think it's going to be the latter. Um, so I, th I think that's a big part of what's going on right now. There's a little bit of chest beating going on and, and even some, some smaller Western markets like Australia, my hometown, is starting to get involved as well. So, you know, I think it's an interesting time because, um, you know, China's definitely at a turning point now, obviously, you know, for the, the well-documented slowing economy and, you know, they're moving towards uh, more domestic consumption, less reliance on exports, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, now it's, it's an interesting time in terms of those international relationships that they have with with the other major um, countries in the world to see how, how this plays out. I think it's it, it's a really interesting time. So how has how has the dialogue shifted during the time that you've been there? Uh, you left Australia in 2008 mm -hmm. and have been uh, dancing across Asia. And uh, so what have you noticed in terms of the shift? Yeah, look, I think when I when I when I first started this eight years ago um, and I was traveling up into Asia a little bit before then. So let's just call it 10 years ago. I mean, there was China was very um, China was almost not left to their own devices, but, but China was, it was rapidly growing. No one really understood it. Um, you know, everyone sort of was starting to realize that it was, it was materially important either to their business or to their country. Um, and, uh, you know, the numbers kept rolling in and no one really was too concerned about how it got there. Now, um, obviously, there's a lot of realization coming out about food safety, around pollution, um, around um, uh, rights for, for people and families. Um, and, uh, you know, people are really starting to stand up and pay attention to this. And I think now China's not getting away with what they used to get away with. Um, obviously, there's been a change in government as well. Xi Jinping came in um, th three years ago now, I think, um, and has really changed the direction of the government for the better. I think he's really been a, a welcome breath of fresh air in terms of his perspective on, on climate change, um, and particularly around corruption um, and trying to stamp out government corruption and the knock-on effect of that has been significant. Um, uh, some of the places that I've visited um, have been quite incredible. They were the playgrounds for the rich and famous, and these playgrounds now, these, these hotels are lying desolate. These hotels would have Ferris wheels and Dodgem cars and, you know, many, many um, uh, sort of Disneylands out the back, and now they're in mothballs. Literally, they've, 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 they've gone, to, gone to the dogs. So the, the, the impact that this is having on, on China is amazing. So... Um, you know, I, I think now that China is not being left to its own devices, they are being held accountable. Um, now, sometimes they sometimes they push back on that more often than not, but at least now it's 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 a bit more visible. So let's um, step back a bit and talk about your Coca-Cola career and how that informs your perspective on China and the West. Coke's beverages can be found in more than 200 countries and an estimated 1.6 billion drinks are consumed every day across the globe. That's astounding. Clearly, you know a great deal about what it takes to build and sustain such a huge customer base. When we last talked about the status of your business, you cited the huge upside for Coke in China, noting that its per capita consumption of Coke, I think you said, was eight liters a year compared with for example, Mexico, where it's 600 liters a year. I think I got those numbers right. What, what's the challenge to taking advantage of this opportunity for you? Um, what do you have to do to, to expand on that opportunity? Yeah, look, it's, it's, um, 
it, it is a big challenge. You know, I mean, gone, gone are the days of just horizontal outlet expansion where you just open up new outlets um, and new relationships with customers and you grow your business horizontally. Um, those days are, are gone. Now it's around how you really drive vertical growth in the outlet and how you get sort of more strategic around how you get that product into the outlet and into the shopper's hands. So looking at route to markets, you know, how you, how you engage wholesalers and distributors. And, of course, you know, when you start in, engaging with these indirect delivery methods, um, it gets very local. And, and uh, you know, we do often don't do that as well as the local companies do because, because they know, you know, these are their friends, these are their colleagues, these are their families who are running these small businesses. Um, so it, it, that, that is a challenge for us. But I think probably the, the, the bigger challenge um, for us, and I should predicate this by saying we're, we're doing well in China. Um, China is a, is, is, a, is a market for us that is, is performing. Um, it is one of our, our top three markets in the world. Um, and, and it is growing. And so, so our business there is good. Um, but I think the, the challenge for us as Coca-Cola is, and this isn't just a China thing, but we are um, a sparkling-led company. And we're starting to shift that dynamic between the balance between sparkling and stills. I think we're doing that very successfully. Um, in China, that's more pronounced. So in China, um, consumers are very much used to drinking still beverages. They tend to be warm beverages and they tend to be teas. And, you know, warm teas is not what we do as, as a business. There are a lot of other categories that we can move into and we, and we are doing that. Um, but, but it takes time. And, you know, there's, there's, um, there's a belief in China that cold drinks are bad, bad for you and that they slow your digestion. So there's, there's some, some uh, I guess, uh, history that we need to get over, which is a generational thing, right, to educate the Chinese consumer that, you know, that, that, that drinking a cold drink is not bad for you. Um, but, uh, but, you know, those things can take time. So there really is a difference between customers and their beverage tastes between Asia and, well, and the West. Although I, I note that when you go to Italy and even France, that people don't drink ice water at dinner. They, if they drink water, it's, it's lukewarm. So maybe, they're, maybe the Chinese aren't so far off, from <laughs> at least the people who think they know a lot about how to eat and drink. So um, what about the... the downturn in the Chinese economy is that having an impact on on uh, coca-cola's business there what what's happening from your perspective yeah I mean look it is sure it is um, and I, I think any major business that says that it isn't is probably probably not being overly truthful you know I, I think the, the the slowdown in the Chinese economy has come from a few things one has been this dramatic impact on the middle class recently when um, the Chinese government legalized gearing um, for private investment, so you could borrow money from the bank and invest in the stock market. And the stock market had been um, rallying for as long as this as long as this generation could remember. You know, I mean, this 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 Chinese stock exchange or the Shanghai Shanghai index had been growing for for ten plus years. And if you're twenty eight years old, it's all you know. So you assume that this is going to continue to grow. So you go and borrow significant amounts of money relative to your own personal wealth, and you invest it. And then, of course, the crash happens. And so you've got three or four hundred million middle class consumers out there. Not all of them are affected by this, but a lot of them are, who now have debts that are unsustainable. And really the growth of our business was coming a lot from this middle class. And so now, of course, they're winding back their discretional spending and, and a Coca-Cola product is a discretional item. And, uh, and so they're, they're, they're scaling that back. And so we need to make sure that we've got the right portfolio with the right product um, in the right location. Um, to meet their need. And uh, so, you know, trying to entice 
consumers to try a new product, you know, in a market where per capita are low, um, you know, it, it takes on a new challenge when that affordability piece becomes even more crucial. This is fascinating to me. It really is true that people born in the last 30 years, three decades in China, have been living in a place where growth has been literally exponential. So I would imagine that it's not only that they may have less money to spend, but there is a shift in their mood about um, are they sharing in the, are these opportunities that they thought were unlimited going to continue? So how does that get reflected, not just towards Coca-Cola and your products, but in general, is there, is there an issue around how much they're willing to speak up about their discontent? Most definitely. Uh, so, well, I, I think that, 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 of course, there is there is controls, right? So, so you can only speak up so much. That's from a governmental standpoint. But then there's a societal impact to that as well. You don't want your neighbours to know that you've fallen on hard times. Um, the, the the saving face element in China, as it is in in some other markets, Japan, that's particularly in that Northern Asia region, is extremely important. And so people are embarrassed. Um, they don't want to say that they borrowed 100,000 RMB and invested in the stock market and made a bad decision, and now they can't afford to put food on the table. So, you know, on, on one hand, they don't want to pipe up because, you know, the government doesn't want that kind of message and story getting out there. On the other hand, and I think this is probably more important, is the societal impact of, of you know, what mum and dad would think and what my friends would think of me because I've made these decisions that, that, have, that have really tripped me up. So, um, so it's a tough place. I mean... I was reading the other day about, you know, suicide rates in, in Shanghai, at least. I don't know if this is in China, but in, in Shanghai. Suicide rates in Shanghai are the highest they've ever been on record. And a lot of that is to do with, with, with these economic pressures now and, and the fact that you can't talk openly about it. And some people are, uh, I guess, taking either the easy or the hard way out. And it depends which way you look at it. But it's, it's a really tough situation. And one of the responses, I guess, is emigration, simply leaving. We know that uh, so many Chinese are interested in having their kids educated in the West, and some of them, in fact, decide to stay once they get here. And yet, uh, on the other hand, many of them do return and are, are doing some fascinating things there. Do you see this, This uh, is, that, is this in the zeitgeist, so to speak, that people talk about are a lot of people leaving China in droves, and what impact does that have? Someone said recently, you know, the best and the brightest may be leaving. Is that a little extreme, or what do you? What do you? Yeah, whether it's the best and the brightest, I don't know, but but there is definitely uh, I, there there is definitely a, a lot of people leaving, and 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 I, there's two different ways to, to segment that. The first is is the rich kids, right? They're moving to the U.S. and and continuing to study. And I think that's you know that was happening even back when China was was booming and and their economy was growing at ten twelve percent. So I don't think that's a new thing. I think that's just an indictment on the fact that you know the education levels at Chinese universities are not where the international levels are, and you've got a lot of families out there with a lot of money who can afford a you know a U.S. or Australian or a Canadian education. So that is continuing to happen as much, um, maybe more so. I think what's happening a little bit less is that they're not, they're not coming back as quickly. I think the, the enticement to come back to China is, is not as strong. Um, obviously, we're starting to see a little bit of a shift. You know, the U.S. is starting to turn around. Um, Australia is their other market and China is the th- and Canada is the third market where they, they predominantly go to. You know, those markets, Australia's obviously had a pretty good run for a long time now. Um, there, are, there are seen to be more opportunities um, down there. So... So we're not seeing as many of, the, of that generation, that up-and-coming, educated 
um, sort of middle class and upwards uh, generation coming back. And then I guess the, the other segment to that as well, which of course is you know, more towards the one or two percent of people like myself, expats, um, we're a dying breed. We are definitely a dying breed in China. Um, you know, I've, I've seen a big, big migration um, in Coca-Cola. When I first moved to China with Coke six years ago, there was a big push to get expats in there, and, and rightly so. You know, the business um, was in need of a push, and, and you bring those that sort of experience in from international to run the business. But now there's very much a push around building local talent, and that's seen as being the sustainable way to build the business because China is unique. And, you know, as skilled as an expat can be from the U.S. or the U.K., the reality is when you get down to grassroots level in China and you're out in a province somewhere, um, you know, all of that experience counts for now. Um, it comes down to, you know, local language and culture understanding and that type of thing. So there really is very much a migration of expats away. And, in fact, I was talking to um, the general manager of Santa Fe Relocations um, just before I left. He's a friend of mine. And, and I said, look, is it just me or are there, are there, more, people, are there more people leaving? He says... Yet there are more people leaving, and he goes, um, inbound is down 50%. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Well, that, that, that brings up another question, because it seems to me that underlying uh, a lot of the conversations we've had, you and I have had, and others with whom I've talked in the past, has been around the whole approach to innovation in Asia, especially in China, uh, and, and juxtaposed against the way innovation is handled and fostered in the West. And as I understand it, uh, expats have brought in and have been able to execute on a lot of their own innovative ideas. And then that has been supplanted by uh, Chinese who have been educated in the West and return and bring that kind of innovative thinking, which may have been new to them, to the companies that they then work for. So if we find that a lot of those people being educated in the West are staying in the West and the the uh, concentration of expats gets reduced, where do we look for innovation? Where do we look to for innovation in China? Where's that going to come from? Yeah, look, and, and, I, and I think, I mean, look, it's a good question. And I think it not just relates to innovation, but, but you know, as, as these international thinkers leave the country and, and really China starts running its own businesses, you know, where's a lot of that new thinking going to come from in general, not just, not just within innovation? I think as it relates specifically to innovation, I, I think I, I can really only talk, obviously, within my business. That's the area of innovation I'm, I'm, I'm closest to. Um, I think that we have a we have a very well connected system globally. We know what's going on around the world. We we have a very good R and D setup, um, and one of our global R and D hubs is based in Shanghai. So so whether you have an expat running that or whether you have a, a capable local um, running that, I still think that the ideas will come. I think the ideas might be a little bit different though, and and I think the the argument there would be that the ideas that would come from the locals would be more suited to the local culture versus the ideas that would come from me that may not be suited to the local culture. So, um, you know, I think innovation is one of those interesting ones where you could actually see it um, rapidly accelerate in the right way because the people coming up with the ideas actually understand the local culture. Well, and the people coming up with the ideas are, are, are living in a place in which they do see issues that that need real attention as in the environment, as in... Um, uh, a number of areas, anti-corruption, uh, the cost of real estate, health care, issues that they really feel if they're going to stay in this country and it's going to be theirs, 
I guess we're we're counting on Gen Ys to come up with some some interesting thinking about that around the stuff that bothers the most, right? Mm. Most definitely. So, yeah. Now, the companies that are outside your industry, specifically like Alibaba and Tencent, we know how um, really what disruptive in a very positive way impact they've had on, frankly, on the global economy. Are there other companies that you look to that you think are doing some really interesting stuff in in China that you might want to mention? Um, anyone jumping to mind? That's doing some really interesting stuff. No, no one that's jumping out, jumping off the top of my head right now, Susan. If I think of any, I'll, I'll let you know. But nothing that's jumping out at me right now. Okay, well, give me a, give me one other, a couple other questions. One is about brands. Obviously, you work for the company that has a brand that is known globally. It's one of the top brands in the world. Some people say that Chinese have no real understanding of the concept of branding. Is that right? And if so, how does that? How how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think when you say the Chinese, it, that's extremely broad. So, so if if you look at the different demographics within that, if you look at the Gen Ys, they're extremely brand conscious, um, extremely brand conscious. But then, as you go down the generations um, and you start getting a little bit older, the brand consciousness slips away very quickly. Um, so, still, the majority I would consider not to be brand conscious. But obviously, as we move through. That, that sort of demographic pyramid, um, the, the brand will become increasingly important. What's interesting, though, is, is that the loyalty to the brand is not there. So you may be brand aware and brands may be important to you and you may want to wear the Nike T-shirt um, and, uh, you know, the French Connection cap, but, but then the next day you'll wear an Adidas T-shirt and the day after you'll wear a Lacoste T-shirt. So, so the loyalty to the brand is not there. So as this Gen Y comes through, um, the brand is extremely important, but you've got to hold and retain that loyalist. I mean, if, if we look at the, the shoppers that we talk to, um, they have uh, on average about um, 12 brands in their basket. About eight, eight of those brands will change with each shopping mission. So, you know, they'll go out and get a toilet roll, but that toilet roll brand will change. They'll go out and get a, a drink, and that brand drink will change. So the challenge that we've got is around you need, obviously need to recruit, but then you also need to try and retain. And, and you know, brands like ourselves, obviously in, in more developed markets, the retention piece, of course, is important. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of loyalty around our brand. That's how we've got to where we are, selling, you know, 1.9 million servings a day so so that retention piece is increasingly important and how do we how do we stay competitive and that ties back into the innovation piece that you just mentioned as well and, and that we need to be very fast and nimble there too um, because you know consumers get bored they get bored very quickly what my my last question is really what what about the increased pressure regarding privacy issues that that's become a global issue does that how does that work in China I'm not talking just so much about um, uh, the, the the government being scrutinized, uh, looking at pe what people do, but but the whole issue about how much do people care about their privacy? Is it like in the West where there's so much concern about Big Brother watching you, or is that a new a new kind of thinking for China? Well, it's it's a well, it's a new thinking, but it's an old one because Big Brother's been watching them forever. <laughs> um, right. So 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 you know, I mean, ever since the Communist Party came in, and you know, in the forties and fifties. Um, Big Brother's always been there. It's it's what they know. So 
So no, I, I don't think that is a bit of a, as an issue. Um, you know, I mean, obviously there's a few people that are starting to push back on it, and you know, you start looking at some of the um, some of the protests that have been happening in Hong Kong uh, last year. You know, a lot of that's got to do with it. But but no, it, it's it's not uh, certainly not an issue the way it is in in markets like the US. Um, you know, you get identity theft and those types of things. Um, yeah, it, dramatic uh, dramatic issue here. Yeah, it really Hans, is. Are they- are, are there other issues that you'd like to mention regarding this whole East meets West uh, arena? Anything that you think is especially interesting? Um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm I'm seeing a little bit of a shift in in um, uh, openness and willingness to partner. You know, going into this, uh, having having seen this 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 movie for a while now, you know, going into it, you know, when when you when you're very successful, you've got a lot of momentum. You don't tend to listen to what other people have to say. Obviously, that momentum's starting to slow now, and, and, and I'm seeing increasingly an openness to at least listen. Now, whether you're going to action on that is another matter, um, but, but a willingness to understand what, what's going on out there, to understand best practices, to hear what other people have to think, have to say about um, you know, macro trends around shoppers, consumers, categories, whatever it might be. Um, there really is a, a more of an openness to that. Um, it's got a way to go, to be honest with you, and I think that the, the kicker, as I touched on, is is whether they actually do anything with it. Um, but but the openness to to listen and the willingness to actually be be um, forthcoming and asking the question is new, and 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 that's something that I think is a good thing. So, Miles, now that you've moved to Singapore, does that change your role at all in in Coca Cola and what you're up to? It does. So so as, as you mentioned at the start of the call, um, Susan, I was doing a. a Asia Pacific role for customer supply chain. Um, I then moved into Asia Pacific role leading our commercial leadership for Asia. Um, and then as I moved into Singapore, I now do um, global commercial leadership. So I report into Atlanta, um, uh, leading our commercial leadership um, for the world. So it will allow me to get a little bit more focused on some of our commercial capabilities, um, but then obviously get more involved in markets um, that are outside of just Asia. So um, it's a it's a really exciting place to be. I'll be doing a lot more um, commercial strategy, a lot more commercial execution, working directly with our with our bottlers to kind of bring our pack price strategy to life, and you know how we how we work with our field force to to make that happen. Well, that's truly exciting. So, thanks very much, Miles. This was fascinating, and I'm uh, delighted to hear about your new role, and hope to talk to you again soon. My pleasure, Susan. Nice to talk thanks. to you too. Thank you. first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.